0: Hey, everyone. Every week, I sit down with investor and writer Byrne Hobart on Turpentine's show, The Riff. Byrne is the rare individual who can synthesize information from tech, finance, and history into fluid narratives that simultaneously capture the big picture and deliver fresh insight. Byrne is revered in Silicon Valley, and you can get an hour with him each week. To see for yourself how Byrne's thinking can upgrade yours, go check out The Riff.
1: There's clearly a social cost of carbon unstated underlying industrial policy as well just because you don't write it down doesn't mean you aren't paying a certain amount for a certain amount of decarbonization it just means that there's no metric to try and i don't think it's better i don't think it's better to have i i guess uh you think uh, a fake number is better than no number i think some attempt to understand the number is better than no attempt to understand the number even if you end up miles off there's an underlying assumption in any policy measure to address any social goal at all about that that is worth a certain amount of money
0: welcome to econ 102 where economist noah smith and i make sense of what's happening in the news technology business and beyond through the lens of economics let's jump right in hey everybody Today on Econ 102, we're sharing a debate about industrial policy between Noah and economics reporter and editor at The Economist, Mike Bird. Noah writes a lot about how industrial policy is the new economic policy paradigm that replaces the old free trade consensus. Mike Bird and his colleagues at The Economist had some key disagreements and sought to hash them out in a debate. After listening to this episode, let us know in the comments where you stand on the shift to a new industrial policy. Here's Noah and Mike.
2: Hey, I'm uh, Noah Smith, of course, and this is Mike Bird of The Economist, um, whose writing I am a big fan of. He is the guy who created the concept of Alt Asia, which is, you know, one of this, these my favorite concepts that I've been on about recently. But it was, you know, due to to Mike Bird's work, and um, and we're here to discuss industrial policy
1: today. Yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Noah uh yeah yeah so i'm the asia business and finance editor at the economist uh i'm usually based in singapore but i'm in london at the moment
2: oh got it oh okay so i I thought you're always in london but that's cool
1: no 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 usually singapore um uh oh i also uh co-present our finance podcast uh money talks which i should plug or i'll get in trouble at work Uh, oh
2: i know i know money talks yeah absolutely listen to money talks uh readers that's it that's the the one and, yeah. and read my bird I'm just sad that you guys don't have still don't have bylines you know it's still nobody knows
1: who wrote what and um it's true it, it causes some difficulty sometimes but honestly uh so I, I used to work at the wall street journal and, and we had bylines there and uh you know this is nothing against the journal because it's like this almost everywhere in journalism but I I think not having the bylines creates a sort of collegiate atmosphere um and it's actually mm. quite nice Everyone's on the same team. Uh, you don't have to worry about treading on people's toes, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, sort of team output thing, which, which is quite nice.
2: Huh. Yeah, I know that's, um, you know, I've always been in the opinion section of things, uh, which yeah. is basically, that means I get to
1: make my own sources up, but it also means I have to put my own name on it. so Yeah, I know true, who made true. It up. I mean, a good thing at The Economist as well is if somebody, you know, sees a piece and likes it, I can just take credit for that, regardless of whether I had anything to do with it. So I'm like, I works on that front.
2: Got it. Got it. Well, anyway, um, so we're here to talk about industrial policy today. And I've been sort of this, you know, a promoter of industrial policy. Um, you know, I've been sort of kind of aligned with the the Brad DeLong faction of things. Uh, Brad wrote this book, Concrete Economics about how, uh, you know, if you don't steer your economy, then then essentially, um, you know, investors will will decide what industries you get to produce and that there's some problems with with letting them do that. Uh, and they won't always make the right choice. And so I've always been interested, you know, I, I'm interested in industrial policy for developing countries, you know, like how did South Korea go, get so rich so fast or whatever. Um, but then I think that recently, we've been talking about industrial policy for developed countries, you know, the should the United States be behaving like a developing country or like a Korea style developing country in some way, uh, you know, in order to meet the economic challenge from China or, you know, all these other reasons, should we be doing this? And I think that that Joe Biden has shifted very decisively in the direction of, yes, we should do it. We've had the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is essentially a giant package of green energy subsidies Um uh, well, and, and and transmission just you know climate related stuff and then we've had the chips Act, which is for semiconductors which throws a huge amount of money toward uh regaining or protecting uh U.S dominance in semiconductor as you know in this in the in the chip industry and so the idea for this debate came when one of your colleagues Christian Odendahl I'm pronouncing that right that's okay. right yeah Christian Odendahl wrote an article, which I misattributed to you because you're talking about it a lot on Twitter. But um, but he wrote this story about, uh, you know, saying that um, the focus on manufacturing in these industrial policies is a delusion and, uh, you know, factory jobs aren't coming back. Everything's going to be automated now. Uh, so, you know, we're never going to return to that, that manufacturing workforce of the 1950s. And, um, you know, so so th- the world is in the grip of this, this great, delusion
1: i i think that's uh that's more or less we had the the piece by christian and then we had a, a leader article uh neither of them of course byline but christian's our europe economics editor he writes uh, a whole bunch for economics coverage um the the piece essentially says which uh i agree with completely um basically the, the sort of four drivers of manufacturing led industrial policy at the moment being uh china uh green industry sort of decarbonization uh, the idea of spillovers into innovation and growth in a variety of different ways, and then manufacturing jobs being the fourth. Um, I, I think those are all correct. I think there's maybe maybe half of another one uh, that that doesn't necessarily apply everywhere, but there's the sort of um, pettis and Klein, like uh, uh, trade wars or class wars sort of logic around this as well relating to Balance of payments stuff, um, but I think that's a it's a smaller one. I think it's a really interesting one, but yeah, I think I think Christian definitely hits the what I see is the big four.
2: I see. Oh wait, the the fourth one would be the idea that manufacturing is easier to export. So if we shift toward manufacturing, we will export more, and there, or global imbalances will reduce.
1: I think there's an element of that, yeah. And I, I think on top of that, the fact that you know uh, the Parts of Asia, for example, that the US has very large bilateral deficits with, uh, that these countries already deploy uh, very aggressive industrial policy type means that that reduce the cost of their own manufacturing, essentially, that they're dumping to some degree, and that it's not anti-free trade, for example, to redress that. I think that sometimes uses some of the logic. I think, as I say, Christian's big four, to me, are are the real ones. But uh, yeah, that's an element of it.
2: Right, right. Okay. Because Michael Pettis himself would say that that's not a big factor. He would say it's, uh, you know, the imbalances are due to financial conditions. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. And, yeah, and yeah, I agree definitely. with
1: that. You know. No, so, fair play. Okay.
2: So, I, uh, a, a justification for um, developing country industrial policy is that if you export, uh, you can raise your productivity because you're competing in world markets instead of just in your own protected domestic market. And, yeah. um, and that this makes you absorb foreign technology, learn how to sell things to foreign people, integrate more with foreign supply chains, and all these things that increase your your company's productivity and therefore the country's productivity. And this, um, and this is not about that idea, which is due to people like Hajun Chang and Joe Studwell and people like that, is not really due to um, trade surpluses, as you know. Pettis always thinks in terms of net things, like how mm. much is going inflows and outflows of of capital and and trade surpluses which is also how Donald Trump and Robert Lighthizer think, et cetera. But the the Chang and Sudwell would think more about, um, you know, a gross exports. Like, it's fine if you're importing a ton, as long as you're also exporting a ton. You know, it's the selling to the overseas market that that forces you to raise your productivity. And in fact, it can be a positive sum game if two countries do this to each other. So if we have balanced trade, but the trade increases, productivity gains would be part of the gains from trade. Um, Yeah. And that that's a, a different idea than this zero sum game of surpluses and deficits. I think.
1: Yes, yes, that's true. That's true. Um, I, I got to be honest. I'm trying to think back to uh, how Asia works and the intricacies of exactly what he sort of spelled out as the model there, and I can't remember. But yeah, I will take your word for it that it that the net part was not an important part.
2: Right. You know, of course, of course, Studwell thinks Korea is the greatest. He's probably right, but. Um... You know, he thinks Korea is the paragon of industrial policy and Korea for a long time during its industrialization actually ran a trade deficit because they were importing, yeah. they were building out yeah. investments. So they were taking foreign capital. They weren't building it all with domestic capital. And that was fine because, you know, they were they were importing more than they were exporting, but they were exporting more and more and more. So they just grew their their living standards. And I think that's sort of his point. And I um and I.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, it's true of Japan as well, right? In that, I, I mean, there were surpluses, but not the sort of China-sized surpluses. And I I think this is one thing that, uh, it's one thing that I think people do get at sometimes, which is China has had such a investment, but also export-led development model that people almost sort of backcast that onto Korea and, and, and uh, Japan previously. But it's really the investment-led element that's the important shared bit. Uh, not necessarily, as you say, the sort of constant trade surplus side of things. Yeah.
2: Right, right, right. Japan had a trade surplus for a while, which resulted in the Plaza Accord, but in 1985, but they they were never that big of an export powerhouse relative to their economy. So they were never... Um, in fact Japan probably has a structural problem exporting because traditionally so many of their exports have had to go through the intermediaries of the sogo shosha the large trade companies like um you know Sumitomo Mitsui uh like or um or itochu yeah. or the, these these trading companies and so Japan Japanese companies were terrible at selling into foreign markets and um you know I actually when, when I was a kid I I edited a book you know I, I really just like helped them rewrite a book for for jetra the japanese external trade uh organization um about why japan was so bad at exporting. and so that was kind of interesting but you anyway, have to dig it out to, i'd love to see it Oh, so um, that book that that, that yeah, book is, yeah. you know almost almost 20 years old it's uh i'm i'm that old it's 17 years old <laughs> but okay. um but yeah so that's it's a little out of date but it is interesting but um Okay, anyway, I guess back to the, the main idea. I thought that, um, one of the big limitations of Christian's piece uh, in The Economist was that he didn't really think about the military side of things. Because, you know, if you read Chip War by Chris Miller um, or a lot of other stuff about chip, the chip industry, you see very quickly that it's a, a lot of it is about precision weaponry. Uh, we've seen in the war in Ukraine, it, drones have just been taking over the battlefield um drones can currently be jammed electronically um you know the, the russians have these electronic warfare systems everywhere that bring down i don't know thousand little you know dji drones a month or something it's, they just drop them like flies but the day that those are able to operate autonomously they can't be jammed because they won't even be sending anything out they'll just be flying on their own with ai to coordinate between them and, or you know tell them where to go what to hit how to find a target And, uh, you know, AI, of course, depends on advanced chips, too. But, you know, I mean, traditionally, chips have powered, you know, all these precision weapons, you know, instead of dropping like a ton of bombs, like we did in World War II, we can just drop one bomb and it goes and finds your artillery gun and go, you know, your rocket launcher and goes, boom, and then you don't have a rocket launcher anymore. And then once we get AI's sort of networked uh, stuff, which requires much better chips, then um, then it's going to be just supercharged and we're just going to have these little swarms of drones dominating the battlefield and whoever gets there first will have a major military advantage for decades. And so I think a lot of the ideas, you know, and then there's a lot of other military applications too. I don't want to go into all of them, but I guess the idea is that if we can stay ahead in leading edge logic chips, leading edge processors, that can process more data quickly do lots of computations very quickly these super, super, super advanced, you know, two nanometer chips or whatever. Sure. Um, there's, then we, I mean, we, I've, we stay ahead of China.
1: Just to be clear about what we're talking about here, I guess there's two elements to it. There's one which is restricting the the sale and development of chips within China, right? The most advanced logic. Chips. Export controls. And then, and then the other one. Is producing that stuff in the United States because currently that's not made in the United States or China, right? It's, it's made in Taiwan, right. and most of the design of the really cutting edge chips is is American, right? So it is American
2: with a bit is, of a bit of British and Korean.
1: Yeah, sure. So the, this is a setup, and you've got the, the Netherlands as well. Um, this is a setup as it is now. So I guess the question would be for something like uh, the logic of industrial policy, whether we mean the restrictions or the, the production incentives, the attempt to subsidize production right. heavily in, in the U.S. specifically. Um, because currently, obviously, the, the, that's not an area where the, the U.S. is reliant on China at all. It's an area where there's a concern that if China invades Taiwan, then that will be presumably destroyed rather than taken. Right. Or at
2: least interdicted you know you're not going to be able to get your tsmc shipments on time if you have a chinese blockade yeah exactly it
1: will be it will be gone yeah exactly exactly i mean i'm i'm very skeptical of the discussions um i, I, I'm, I have no reason to think you believe this but there's a lot of discussion often in the us about the idea of china sort of taking tsmc um which which i i find pretty bonkers um but yeah no this, this is a meaningful thing there's a meaningful military application here um and, and in terms of the production at home um i certainly think that the line of the economists has always been that there's a legitimate national security uh, argument for uh, the very leading edge ships um that that in terms of a supply for for defense that that's not an unreasonable point of view um so let me just sort of lay out if it's useful that the way i see the different elements of American industrial policy sort of interacting with each other. And, and therefore, mm-hmm. where I see the the sort of problems coming from. So essentially, what you have right now is, is this series of, of different reasons to do these things, particularly, I'd say, um, to me, manufacturing jobs, uh, China, green sort of industrial transition. And there's one way of thinking about these things, which is that they're like tent poles, right? And when you have more of them, they they lean to support each other or they're like legs on a chair, right? More is better. If you've only got a couple of legs, the chair's gonna fall over the, you know, it's more supported, right? The other way of thinking about this is like, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. And every time the argument for one variety of often expensive manufacturing subsidy falls through, you are going for the other one, right? That's the problem, as I would see it, whether these are mutually reinforcing isn't always clear to me. Sometimes that's called a I
2: gish conflict. gallop. We we have a, a gish a, gallop, a gish gallop when you when someone rebuts one of your arguments and you just skip to another.
1: There you go. I, I didn't know that word. That's very useful. Um, This is this is the concern that I would have, that sometimes, particularly on things like uh, the actual economic benefits um, will be argued for, and then someone will switch to talking about resilience against China. Resilience, very difficult world, a very difficult word, very undefined what that means, exactly how far that should spread, exactly how much production it requires to be in the US, whether you need a sort of essentially a full scale war economy for a country that for two countries that are not at war. Um, because I think ultimately that's what resilience will require real resilience and then when you look at the decarbonization stuff uh, you have again a number of uh, very very laudable goals and I don't think anyone is in denial that you can spend more money in a variety of different ways to decarbonize more rapidly it's the fact of whether the money at the moment is being spent in the right way and the fact that the decoupling from China makes the decarbonization side of things much, much more expensive. Doing those two together is going to be the area, I think, of, of greatest expense relative to what you could do if you were only doing pursuing one of those policies. Right.
2: Now, I you know, I'm I'm not gonna gish gallop. Uh, you know, I'll I I but when you have a large list of of reasons to do things, that in and of itself does not seem to me like a strike against a policy no that's true simply because defenders of it are able to do a gish gallop if they want uh, it seems like that doesn't necessarily bear on the reasonability of the policy itself merely on the difficulty of having coherent discussions about it yeah
1: i think it's the, it's the difficulty of, it's not just the coherence it's the uh it's the the sort of rigor of what we're attempting to do when you have a singular target, something that you're aiming for, we can concretely say certain amount of dollars for a certain amount of decarbonization. If we were just pursuing manufacturing jobs, we could at least have a discussion about how much we have to pay for each manufacturing job. When you've got a number of different metrics or even some things that aren't really measured in, in any sort of uh, financial or economic way at all, uh, which I'm thinking mostly about the China stuff, um, it's very very difficult, I think, to establish a baseline, at least for me, on on uh, how successful the policy is for the given spending on it. That right. said, I I completely agree, and that's why I say, you know, to some extent, it's like a, a temples thing. If you look at it that way, then right. these things reinforce each other, and that's good. That's not a bad thing.
2: For example, suppose you were talking about uh, exercise. You know, you're going to work out, get in shape. That you could list multiple benefits of this, including better blood sugar control, better cardiovascular health slowed cellular aging, um, better mental performance on various measures, and maybe you'd look better too. So to me, that is not an argument against uh, exercise, simply because it is difficult to measure the sort of all-in effectiveness of exercise in a single measure. You know, I can't point you to a number saying, how well is exercise going? No one, no personal trainer on earth could do that. Um, but you, and different people who come to a personal trainer will want different benefits from that interaction, right? Some people will want to look better. Some people will want better cardiovascular health, and you can target those individually to the extent that people know how much they want each of one, but we don't always know. And so what we have is this, this thing exercise, which can help you in a variety of ways. And as at least if you do it in a healthy way, I'd say there's, there's few downsides you know, to exercise, which may not be true of industrial policy, but but exercise is pretty much, you know, you should do it. I should do it. We should all do it. And and yet, that doesn't mean that you can point to one number and say exercise is working. You know, that's
1: a fair point. I guess i I wonder if, in my view, it's more like imagining that exercise was worse for your blood pressure levels. <laughs> I guess it's in the sense that. I don't necessarily believe that every outcome here is necessarily good. There are trade-offs that make one of these objectives better at the cost of making the other one worse. I think right. we can agree, for example, that there are dramatically cheaper. If if, if the U.S. woke up, tomorrow, if we all woke up tomorrow and had been a huge rapprochement between the, the U.S. and China and everything was sorted and, and China was going to have elections and, and everything was going to be amazing from now on. I think we can all agree that there'd be much cheaper ways of pursuing exactly the same decarbonization goals, for example, by massively integrating the Chinese and U.S. supply chains, right? But that would be dramatically cheaper. So these things, while they can be supportive of each other in some ways, there are also massive trade-offs where there's a hugely expensive more way of doing this that is currently being pursued um, because right. of the other objectives, not just because of the uh, decarbonization. Right.
2: And, and you know, my I guess my response to that so, so let's talk about the China, uh, you know, decarbonization nexus here. I do not believe we should be putting any tariffs or any sort of barriers toward Chinese uh, solar panels or batteries. I think that those are not things Um, we should have some production incentives for some of the to do some of those things in the United States for the simple reason of national security. Because suppose that we go to war with China and our economy runs on batteries, and suddenly we're cut off from our supplier of batteries. That sounds bad. Um, and it, and the knowledge that we would be cut off from the sole supplier of things that are crucial to make our economy go would then potentially tie our hand. You know, we would be less willing to defend Taiwan, defend the economic order in Asia that has long-term benefits or whatever. Um so then um yeah basically i think that that uh cutting ourselves off from from cheap chinese green energy tech seems like a bad idea but um you know uh, i i think that maintaining some you know modest amount of production here that we could quickly scale up in an emergency makes sense simply from a national security point of view because um we don't want to wake up and find ourselves unable to make a battery the way we woke up and found ourselves unable to make a mask or a covid test or you know a um ventilator yep. in the early days of covid that was highly disruptive and it took us months we did manage to fix that we 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 fixed it it took us a while and we had to really scramble and use the defense production act and blah blah, blah. it took months it took half a year i would say to really get the, those production lines up um and um and i think that you know, in half a year, a lot of yeah, you know, that Taiwan conflict will have proceeded pretty far, maintaining some some modest amount of production in the United States of even those simple goods, right? Simple like a battery, simple like a solar panel, simple like a COVID mask, right? Um, maintaining that allows us to spin up those e- more easily in the event of an emergency. So I would say that, although I think that we should be importing large amounts of cheap solar panels and batteries from China, and that's fine and good i also think that the idea of doing absolutely nothing in this you know in terms of industrial policy in that particular area could carry some security risks like we had in covid yeah
1: definitely and i i think uh i mean you you, you know even pretty ideological you know you think about adam smith was was perfectly happy with with um National security, foreign policy-related uh, production, right? That was that was against uh, a sort of free trading system. This isn't. This isn't. You know. I think we both of us, based on your description, there are actually on the more sort of market-friendly side relative to the industrial policy as it exists today, as it's being encouraged today. Because I don't think that most of the the production of batteries in the U.S. is going to be on a sort of well let's let's get things going in case we need them and, and have a certain amount of production but rely a lot on on international trade including with china as well it, it doesn't look to me like what's going to happen i think the problem really? is i no i i don't it's going to be that, much larger scale than that in terms that's of exactly of w- what
2: what i just described is like when i talk to you know people close to the biden administration or even in the biden administration th- that actually is what they're thinking and i don't think anyone is contemplating replacing Chinese imports wholesale. If you look at the, you know, quote unquote, buy American provisions, they are not uh, mandates. So in in the past, you know, we said you have to buy American if you're going to, if you're going to get this government funding, if you're going to get these government contracts, you must buy American. And it was, that was a very damaging policy, which we shouldn't repeat. But what, uh, what they've done with the buy American provisions in the um, inflation reduction act is that uh, if you have a certain amount of American-made contact, you get a bit of an extra subsidy. I it's, mean, it's, it's not a bit.
1: These are these are large subsidies. We're talking about seven and a half thousand dollars per unit, right? This is not these, these are fairly significant subsidies. You're talking about I, for, I agree car. That, yeah, I agree that they're not outright bans, but but these are significant right. and and they tighten over time.
2: I, I was um, talking right. I was talking about for solar panels. We're still importing most of our solar panels from China. Yeah, sure. And that's that's not going to change.
1: I, I, yeah, no. I'm much more focused on the the battery industry. So, no, oh, the I, batteries. Yeah, um So, so I, are, are we
2: talking about um, subsidies on batteries that we then use to make cars here? Or Are we talking about yeah, subsidies on the batteries finished cars? used to make
1: used to make cars here uh, okay. in the U.S.
2: Because yeah. you know my, um, you know the, this one company that I that I shill for because I invest in them and I love what they do. The uh, um impulse, the battery powered appliance company. They um they had like no problem sourcing batteries from China and they intend to source part of their batteries, not from China for national security reasons, but they, a lot will be sourced from China. I don't think there's been any, I don't think there's been any difficulty thrown up by the IRA. I think on, you know, on balance, if you look
1: at the, if you look at the total volume of what the U S needs to meet, Or even reach anywhere close to the the goals for electric vehicles. Mm -hmm. The scale of the expansion of the battery industry is going to have to be absolutely enormous, right? Mm -hmm. And the subsidies are going to, you know, they're necessitated uh, to be very high. When I talk to particularly sort of Korean and Japanese companies, right, which are the, the real source of, if you look at like battery cell part manufacturers and end battery manufacturers, Those are the elements that the US desperately wants to bring in to the US, right, as much as possible. And I talk to them and for starters, there's an acknowledgement that this is all gonna be very, very expensive for a very long time. And I think the next element of that, that I always run up against when I'm speaking to them is that they don't envisage removing China from their supply chains at all, right? Which makes me question the resilience of the program, right? Because if they can't get China out of their supply chains, then what you have is production sites in the US, Japan, Korea, right? That while the end production is coming from those places, you may have satisfied the the IRA uh, requirements to get various battery related subsidies. You know, it's it's all fine on that front. If, for example, in the metals processing, if it's all Chinese companies doing that in very large parts of that industry is, and I don't really see any sort of competition coming in on that end, then what I see is this being quite expensive without necessarily producing the sort of resilience that the policy is aimed to satisfy in the first place. And I think that's because these concepts around resilience are extremely difficult to measure. And what you end up with, in in my view, is either it starts to tip further and further in one direction. There's some people who, when you say, oh, this isn't going to be resilient because X, Y, Z, their answer is, oh, we just need to produce even more of it domestically it needs to be even more aggressive and i just think that's the that's the direction things have gone in
2: i am I'm, I'm kind of not sure i understand the argument here because i feel like um basically if you know economics says economics says that if you um if you subsidize something you'll get a little more of it you'll get more on the margin it's a marginal effect right it's yeah, not yeah um, so if we subsidize you know, every sort of, if we go around and we make a list of things and we say, which of these things would it really hurt us to suddenly lose on the, on, on the date of a war? Yeah. Uh, which of these things would it really screw our economy to not have any of it all? And if we go down a list and we give subsidies to everything on that list, then, um, what will happen is we'll get a little bit of each of those things on the list because it's on the margin. Um, we're not talking about a subsidy to the size of, well, at least I don't think we should be, and I don't think we are if you look at these numbers. I think that we're not talking about a subsidy that's so large that the United States would move all its nickel processing from China to the United States. And now we would process 100% of the nickel that we use or whatever. I think that's not what will happen from these subsidies. Instead, we'll get like a couple nickel processing facilities and the fact that it will only be a couple that it will be on the margin because it's a marginal policy means that we'll limit the amount that we spend right um we'll also limit the amount that we we decouple from china um but we will limit the amount that we spend and so you know if we if we do subsidies and only a couple people take advantage of them and only a couple nickel processing plants open that's not bad because those people now know how to process some nickel and in the event of a war uh we can say hey you two guys who know how to process nickel let's expand and then we use dpa defense production act to expand those few nickel processing factories to larger things and that's that's the pattern we saw with covid where we had a couple people who knew how to make ventilators a couple people who knew how to make masks domestically and we just you know we committed resources to them and and had them expand and um it's not instantaneous, but it happens a lot quicker. If you don't have anybody around who knows how to manufacture, who knows how to process nickel, you know, you just have nobody. And you're like, who knows how to process nickel around here? And then you, you know, you're just flailing. And then, you you know, maybe someone in another country, maybe you have to go grab someone from Australia or wherever, uh, you know, to go process nickel for you. Um, it could take a lot longer to spin it up. So I think that I see, whereas I don't want anything approaching self-sufficiency in these in these supply chains i think that that's not a goal we should be aiming for with green energy maybe in high-end chips yes but in in green energy no um you know in, in batteries and solar panels no but i think that and, and metal processing no i don't think we should be aiming for self-sufficiency but having a little bit of each thing seems valuable to me in terms of national security and i feel like subsidies are a marginal policy that will In effect create a little bit of that thing in america which is
1: exactly what i would kind of intuitively want i think i think two two things um most of all i think uh there's a separate argument for for high-end chips the u.s will be able to produce high-end chips um if it wanted it could produce all the high-end chips that the u.s needs right it's going to have to pay you know, uh, Morris Chang, the founder of TSMC, when he speaks about the, the the costs of the the Oregon plan that TSMC set up, he said it's about 50 percent more expensive. Um, you know, they're having to delay the the um, the establishment of the, the really high end chip uh, fab that they're setting up in Arizona by a year because it's difficult to find the skilled workers. It's going to be expensive. It's going to be difficult. But the U.S. can ultimately do all these things. Right. The. The batteries, I see it differently in the sense that I think what well, you're going to get by setting up those bits, trying to set up, for example, American nickel smelting, you're going to get something that doesn't have economies of scale, because as you say, you're setting up as little of it as possible to be expanded out, right? So on its own, it's it's not a an economically productive idea. It's, it's for national security reasons. Um, and I think in uh, the circumstance of a war at the scale of production that we're talking about the US having in 10 or 20 years, that will not be possible to scale up just based on the fact that unlike chips, uh, well, not entirely unlike chips, but but much more so than chips, these things are based on specific heavy industry, so, so heavily concentrated in certain parts of the world. You know, you cannot overemphasize just how much a global battery supply chains are found in East Asia um, and then how much of the the raw material is found in very specific parts of the world. Indonesia, for example, no longer lets companies just buy nickel ore. You can't buy it from them and and process it in the US, right? You've got to process it there. And all the high-end acid leaching firms, the, the, the companies that do this, they're either Chinese or they have a Chinese JV because the Chinese companies have the technology to do this. I think, The idea of having a small version of that that you'll be able to expand, it defies uh, a sort of mental sniff test for me. Um, uh, I'd love to be corrected by people who know a lot about these industries, but I really struggle seeing the value in what will be a very expensive setup, something that I don't believe you'd be able to expand at scale. Um, You'd start to get into more speculative discussions about what the U.S. would really do in that circumstance, but I think right. the ultimate answer is probably something like: if you're going to war and it's like a war with the second-largest economy in the world, that probably going back to like using internal combustion engines sounds like a more likely outcome to me.
2: Okay, but if we if we decarbonize our economy, um, if we if we switch to electric vehicles, as we pretty much need to do to reduce our emissions substantially. And which we're going to do because the technology has improved to the point where it's just getting just better than internal combustion um that means that going back to internal combustion is a thing we can is words we can say but not a thing that we could actually do easily in a pinch instead we'll be used to using battery vehicles so um a war happens and you know we make all these electric vehicles and so much stuff is powered by batteries including stuff that can't be powered by you know, uh, internal combustion, You a small drone that used for war. You can't power that with an IC because that is small. And the machinery sure, sure. of an internal combustion engine is large and loud. And so you need a small, quiet battery for these little drones that will be militarily important and are already proving military important in Ukraine. We're going to need batteries for a number of other technologies. as Well, it could make a laundry list, but I won't. The question is on the day that suddenly you know china says we're taking taiwan Fuck you we're the masters of asia and uh this is this is it this is how it's going to be we're the new empire you know around here taiwan today and tomorrow japan and korea and all these other countries india must bend the knee and they do this right suppose it supposedly and on that day what do we do do we say well you know i um I guess we you can't fight your factory, so have fun, guys. You're the masters of Asia. And do we and do we do we make that determination? Do we say, okay, China, you're the you're the masters of Asia because if you if we can't, you know, you make you process all the nickel, and without the nickel, we can't. You process all the uh, the lithium without the lithium processing, our economy doesn't run, and therefore you can do whatever you want. We we give up, um, and we did that. And when we give up and the, the geopolitics of the world changes in a decidedly more darker, more authoritarian and more regionally fragmented direction, simply because it was expensive to have some lithium processing facility, to have a few lithium processing facilities. It was expensive on a per unit basis before that crisis, before that war. And that's why the geopolitics of the world end up getting completely screwed, because we were unable to oppose China, because we were unable to take a small hit to economic efficiency in one sector or in just a few sectors that you know i don't see that as a good outcome i don't there's no way in which no i i, I would agree i would agree it's certainly certainly what not
1: what that's certainly not what i would advocate for and i i think it it goes to the point of what i was trying to say initially about these goals clashing against one another if if you're trying to think of the way for the us economy to be most resilient against uh chinese aggression in in the rest of asia and the way that economically the US can protect itself, then that is going to clash heavily against decarbonization goals. That's just the reality of this. The the, the, the Clearly the best way to do that if you really wanted to. And again, we're, we're in the realms of sort of a fantasy now because I think both of our preferred outcomes here are, are nothing like any of these. But the US currently produces how many millions of internal combustion engine vehicles a year, right? The, the idea of maintaining some of that capacity is not the same as making extremely expensive reserve capacity for just in case scenarios, right? It's one is clearly dramatically more expensive than the other. Now, it, it then someone who is in favor of that would rely on the decarbonization argument, right? This is the problem with these two things interacting with each other. That the way of making America economically resilient, the way of making it uh resilient against China and, and the way of making it easy to decarbonize as separate moving parts, right? And the idea that creating these reserve industries of potentially nationally secure production, which honestly, again, I find it just extremely difficult to imagine that, that this will ever work at almost any cost, right? That you'll be able to cut China out of every part of that supply chain, right? But even if you did, it's very difficult to say on any of these metrics that it's necessarily the right idea to pursue. Um, It's the process that we've ended up with and I feel like people are trying to reverse engineer this into it necessarily being a good idea. Well,
2: there's a lot to unpack there, but so let's, let's focus on this idea of conflicting goals. Yeah. In some cases, doing something can satisfy multiple objectives at once. Um, In some cases, the objectives will are, will clash and there is a trade-off and we have to decide how to optimally respond to that trade-off. So, for example, in terms of batteries, let's just take batteries as our one paradigmatic example here. Um, And let's say that um, we're deciding, we're weighing the, you know, the need for rapid decarbonization, which I think is important, versus the need Mm -hmm. for resilience against, uh, you know, war with China, which I think is also important. Those are two important goals. And in the case of batteries, they clash. Yeah. Because the most rapid decarbonization is uh, possible would be to say buy everything from China. Because yeah. they subsidize heavily and you know uh and, and they're they're still cheap. You know, China doesn't have cheap labor costs anymore, but they capitalize and, and you know they subsidize a ton. And um <clears throat> and they have big scale. So, you know, we say, All right, so so if all we cared about was decarbonization, we'd buy everything from China if all we cared about resilience is resilience maybe we buy nothing from China. Um, so there there's some internal optimum, there's some happy medium, there's some way of balancing those two incentives. And to me, this is not an argument that says, okay, you know what we should do? Nothing, because balancing different objectives is difficult. Finding that internal solution is hard. I, so let's just do nothing. And let's just go be clear, back to, to be and say trade. No, nothing. I don't think, anyone, no, no, I don't do think
1: anyone wants to argue in favor of doing nothing. I think everyone understands it's not the nineteen nineties anymore. The geopolitics have, have massively changed around this. And we're talking about the best way to balance these two goals against one another and to think about these things. So one thing that I think would be good that I was interested that you were uh maybe not against, but less in favor of in the post that you wrote on this was, was carbon taxation. Because to me, Carbon taxation is the crucial element here because it's the way in which we determine what the costs we're willing to bear to meet this social goal are, right? The problem with the China-related stuff is precisely because we're not able to price these goals, right? And we don't have any clue as to how much self-sufficiency is worth paying for, whether you need 80% self-sufficiency in a certain sector to bother having any at all, right? Because it may be that for some of these goals, you need perfect self-sufficiency. I can genuinely see the case in advanced chips for that sort of thing, right? If you genuinely believe that a war with Taiwan is possible, then you may need 100%. And it may be that that nothing less than that is worth anything. And I genuinely think with something like battery production, that it's possible that there's no point in having 20% productive capacity, that it's enormously expensive relative to the, the very minimal gains that that gets you. Right. And the best thing about carbon pricing, at least on the environmental front, is that it achieves the price. Right. You know what you're aiming for. You priced it in some way and you're willing to pay for it. I think the problem with the industrial policy side of things is precisely that there isn't that sort of naked, open, obvious, we're either meeting this or we're not pricing. Um, so, yeah, I was interested. What, what was your thinking?
2: Well, so I'm, you know, I'm pretty familiar with the literature on carbon pricing. And what I also know is that um, it's made up. Uh it's the the numbers that come out of uh you know dice models for carbon pricing have been revised by a factor of 10 recently. A factor of that's an order of magnitude in terms of the price of sure. carbon, the 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 you know shadow cost um of the social cost of carbon. Um that Though that number has been revised by a factor of ten in the models that the sort of, you know, gurus like you know, um, Nordhaus or um, or especially Greenstone will put out, and that was in response largely to a public backlash that I participated in, but that the you know where we said basically, you know, what they did in around twenty around 2005 through 2010 was they basically sat around imagined some possible harms from carbon estimated very unreliable linear models of this from what we knew already without nonlinearities um assumed those are the those are the costs that we what we sat around and came up with in this brainstorm session are all the bad things that could happen due to climate change and then we priced these with this like extremely you know linear model and then we extrapolated this to this this cost of carbon and then we sla- you know put that through this dice model and then we came up with this number right of of price per ton and that's what the carbon tax should be. And then a lot of people got very mad uh, and I got mad. You know, I'm not, I'm not involved in that research literature, but I had to study it for grad school. And it's like, this is, what are you talking about? Like you've ignored this and this and this. And not only that, you've ignored the tail risks. Like, um, you know, Weitzman um, wrote, he, he wrote a bunch of stuff saying you've ignored all the tail risks. Cool. And then, so in response to this, they've changed things. And, and the social cost of carbon has gone up by an order of magnitude. Well, great. Um, so so i know that this is a bit of fiction that we but the idea that we can put a price on this you can put a price on anything i can make you a model i could make you a model that would put a price on resilience against Chinese aggression and it would be like an intermediate goods, uh, you know, a Chad Jones style linkages and complementarities model where not having this one thing increases your cost by this much and then we calibrate the parameters and blah, blah, blah and, you know, make a scenario and then, you know, the I we get a couple people to IMF to work on this and then, you know, it's not that hard to do to just plug in some numbers, i.e. calibrate and then we come up with the cost of resilience, you know, and then we say, okay, well, we want to pay this many dollars for resilience versus this many dollars For carbon, and that resilience price is likely to be off by orders of magnitude if it even makes sense, if the models even make sense in the first place. So I know that this is is a difficult thing to do.
1: No, of course it's a difficult thing to do. The idea that we we shouldn't do any
2: policy, that we should refrain from doing a policy unless
1: unless we have some numbers. Nobody's, Nobody's 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 talking about not doing any policy. I I think the point is there's a there's clearly a social cost of carbon unstated underlying industrial policy as well just because you don't write it down doesn't mean you aren't paying a certain amount for a certain amount of decarbonization it just means that there's no metric to try and i don't think it's better i don't think it's better to have i i guess uh you think uh, a fake number is better than no number i think some attempt to understand the number is better than no attempt to understand the number even if you end up miles off there's an underlying assumption in any policy measure to address any social goal at all about that, that is worth a certain amount of money and not saying it doesn't make it better to me. I, I, I'm very skeptical of that on that basis. Um, Maybe a carbon tax isn't the exact perfect way to do things, but I think it much more closely satisfies the fact that we're looking to find out what the trade-offs are. And I think at the moment there's a feeling of steaming ahead and we'll find the trade-offs down the line when they're all very obvious. Um, And I'm very skeptical of that.
2: Uh, that and that and that's fair you know like i but i think that this is more of the idea of let's get some let's get a few economists to make a model that then tells us that we you know to do what we already sort of wanted to do and that's that's fine that's a lot of what economics is actually um you know for example that what the 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 models that won the nobel prize about um uh, you know, finance being an important part of the economy and you shouldn't let the banking system fail in a recession or whatever. That was, uh, you know, incredibly important in 2008, 2009, in terms of what the United States did to not allow its economy to collapse after the financial crisis. And yes, Bernanke got a Nobel Prize for making those models. But in the end, those models were made to justify to economists and economist adjacent people. Um Possibly the economist, um, they were made to 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 back justify the the kind of ideas that people you know already had anyway. They looked at the Great Depression and they say, well, all these, the bank failures were what really hurt us at the beginning of the Great Depression. Maybe you know, and the and the bank holiday that stopped those failure cascading failures was obviously what stopped the bleeding and started the United States on the road to recovery in 1933. And mm-hmm. um, and so they said, uh, let's make a model of why that works it's a, it's a just so story to a certain extent. And I think it's, it's good that it won the Nobel prize. Those models are, you know, and I I like those models. Great. And I, I like what they support and I'm glad they were honored with the Nobel prize. And, and I think we also have to keep in mind the fact that they were back justifications for policies that we got from reading economic history and applying intuition. And that that's something we have to, to recognize. So while I, you know, a lot of my writing about industrial policy will involve urging economists to sort of make these explicit models. I think it will be, given the the timeline for producing and making these models, it will be a couple of years before they start coming out, even if people listen to what I say, and I can persuade people to do these. And in the end, their output will be something very much like what we're already doing. Uh, because that's why they'll be created. They will be created assuming that these two, you know, Margins must be balanced of decarbonization and resilience, and they will come up with some internal solution with some number and then and everyone will understand that number to be a bit of fiction and everyone will understand the fact that your those are the two incentives came from our assumptions. You know that that's what is going to happen there. And that's fine. It's a good exercise. It's important to do. It helps to convince people. It helps to sell these ideas, but the real ideas are happening in this video debate. like that's where the real ideas of balancing these two two things is, is coming from. And a million. I say the point. I, take
1: the point. I, I think I think the problem in in the case of not doing it, and I do understand exactly what you're saying. Like, this is how a lot of the reality of this work is produced. At the same time, I do think that without it, and, and even we doing it in that sense, you really do struggle to account for any waste or any misallocated spending whatsoever. Right. Like, I think we both agree that conceptually, because at least some of this spending could be wasteful. Right. And some of it in certain circumstances Usually. could be very wasteful. Future. right like yeah um and and I I think another point that I think we I think I've sort of come to a, a sort of personal understanding of is that there's there's this debate about whether all of this is about manufacturing jobs right um and and I think I think we may be on opposite sides of that and I think uh tell me if I'm wrong but sort of as I understand your argument it's that the manufacturing jobs may be a very important part of selling the policy but that the other goals are worthwhile enough in themselves that you don't need the manufacturing jobs. It wouldn't need to ever produce a job uh, for this to work.
2: Well, that's not, so So here's what I think. I think um, the people, a lot of people, you know, involved in trying to, to urge the Biden administration to do these policies, such as the Roosevelt Institute, really believe in the factory job story. They're mm-hmm. closely aligned. I mean, the, their their politics are just labor right? They're closely aligned with labor unions. They see a big bonanza for uh, for labor unions in manufacturing. They want to return to like the unionized workforce of the 50s. They know we won't go all the way back there, but they think maybe a shift in that direction could be helpful. And they, that's one of their priorities. And it is not one of my priorities. I differ from those people. We're on the same side in terms of urging some of these policies. We differ in terms of what we think Will be the good results from these policies. Um, I believe that that most of the factories will be automated, and it will be you know the 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 jobs will primarily be um, and and Odendal wrote this as well. You know they'll be in yeah. after servicing and like a bunch of a bunch of very high end kind of technical stuff. It'll be it'll be stuff for people with college degrees or even graduate degrees in case of high end chips. It's going to be PhD yeah. holder but then um but but certainly for people with with college degrees. and so um so i don't think that that good factory job world is going to come back. but but that said i also do not think that jobs that that that, that there's no economic rationale for industrial policy here at all because i think there um there's something called a local multiplier and we need i need a trendier snappier term for this because what it really means is that if you have um say say that you have a software company you have google right and google comes in a certain place and then all the like smarty pants google engineers or or maybe they were smarty pants 10 years ago now they're just okay but all the google engineers come from around the world to work in you know your your google area and then they Um, They there's two things they do. uh, Besides just make Google software, if Google makes software anymore, there's two things that they do. Number one, that produces a clustering effect, because not all those people are going to stay at Google, a lot are going to quit. And um, what that means is there's an incentive for other software companies to locate close to where Google just put their facility because they will be able to hire easily from the people who come to work at Google and don't get a job there or the people who quit or the people who just move there because it's like the place to be in tech. I don't know, you move to Ann Arbor, Michigan, wherever. There's a clustering effect of firms in the same industry that come in. And uh, those clustering effects are pretty big. The second thing, which is also pretty big is called agglomeration which is different than clustering, because what that means is that the Google pe- the people who come there to work for Google will spend their money locally. They will buy pizza, they will buy haircuts, they'll buy doctor's appointments, they'll buy insurance, they'll buy houses, they'll buy everything that regular schmoes who don't code, don't program computers, will sell to people. And so there is this local multiplier um, where export revenue, which is Google, you know, Google's, the stuff they sell is export revenue at the level of a town right so yeah, like if sure. you make google software in and NR,
1: internationally as well
2: and internationally but when, so when i but when i'm saying export i just mean relative to the town you're in sure. um this is paul krugman's theory. It's right out of krugman um then yeah you know you you sell stuff outside of the town money comes in and it circulates and there's some multiplier and enrico moretti the economist um who currently lives a block from me um he uh is going to, um, he, has, he, has, he has estimated, tried to estimate local multipliers with various techniques and found out that they're pretty large. Um, they're pretty large for software, they're pretty large for biotech, and they're pretty large for advanced manufacturing. Um, we have a lot of software in biotech already, advanced manufacturing, we're doing less of, but the point is that if you're gonna create jobs with manufacturing policy, those jobs aren't necessarily going to be in factories those jobs and 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 you're going to create jobs for um people without college degrees a person without a college degree may know how to like install the uh smoke detectors i think the- uh, because yeah. you're a google engineer and you buy a home and you put smoke detectors in there and then some some blue collar person without a college degree will come and fix your pipes and install your smoke detectors and blah 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 and those that agglomeration economy has um externalities there's actual there's actual externalities sure.
1: There. And I so, think you, I, so yeah. I, I think the reason, the reason I, I, I sort of the agglomeration argument I'll, I'll take right clearly, uh, that TSMC engineers in in Arizona will need to get their hair cut and and everything. I I think that the problem that I have in this specific case for the idea of clustering is that the firms that have to cluster around TSMC are also being heavily subsidized. Right, they're the other parts of the semiconductor chain that also need heavy subsidy. And whereas in software or biotech, the U.S. is genuinely world-leading in these areas, the U.S. is trying to bring uh, an industry, the production of which it is not world-leading or even really present in, to bear in, in the U.S., right? And which industry are you talking about specifically? Advanced semiconductors. Right, the production the of them. Right? right, so I I don't I don't see them as the the same thing. I can totally believe it for software or any other industry where the U.S. is genuinely at the productive frontier and does not have to pay enormous subsidies to get people to operate things in the U.S. Right, there is no uh, international major Google competitor. Right, the, the U.S. is amazing at that sort of stuff and it's not amazing at the advanced manufacturing when it comes to the chip industry you look at wages in in korea or taiwan that are on the advanced end of this and they're like less than half of the us wages and they're genuinely good at it right i i just i personally don't see it i i, I don't see how the clustering effect can ever be large enough unless you have an incredibly optimistic view of how quickly the us can surmount those producers in East Asia and get to the productive frontier, right? I, I don't know how that clustering effect can ever be large enough to offset even a portion of the subsidy. So I I buy it when we're talking about this for like well, national for them, defense reasons, and it's a cost, right? It, it worked for them and then they won, right? That, that, that's the problem. It's just that, but they weren't doing it from the perspective of being like the richest country in the world. right? But they got a they lot richer. Start- they got a lot richer, but they didn't even get to like half the U.S. level. Like, it's it, it, they're nowhere near. You look at the wages that you have to pay someone to work in a TSMC plant. It's, it's nothing like what you pay in the U.S. Yeah, in, wages uh, no. aren't
2: wages. You know, these are incredibly capital intensive industries. You could have massive differences in wages for only a small difference the, in total. The cost. land
1: cost, the construction cost, everything costs dramatically more in the U.S. Right? It's 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 enormously different expense. I so, I just I. I, on national defense, I'm like, even if I can buy completely into the national defense so, argument, and I basically do for chips, I really struggle to discuss this as if it's not just a big cost, right? We should just accept it. It's a huge cost. We think the resilience is worth it. We think that foreign policy stuff is worth it. But we don't have to then add, add over the top that actually it's going to be great economically as well. It's not. It's going to be hugely expensive. Um. So what
2: I'm saying here is re- remember that the idea that something like exercise or industrial policy could have multiple benefits, should not be a strike against it. Um, What I'm saying is that if you do create local jobs through agglomeration economies or through clustering economies too, that defray, even if those by themselves would not be quantitatively sufficient to justify industrial policy subsidies, they defray some of the cost. And defraying, so suppose that we put a price on national security, and we say we're willing to pay this much, right, how much we should be willing to pay will also depend on ancillary benefits. So if you, any policy, for example, if you do NASA, how much should we be willing to pay for space exploration? Whatever you, however you value space exploration, right, however much you personally value that, you can defray some of those costs by the technological spin-offs that you get from space exploration, from the advanced materials and, and science you get. That doesn't mean that, just doing those spinoffs would be sufficient on its own to go to the moon. Maybe it wouldn't, but it defrays some of the cost. And I think that when we think about whether to do industrial policy and we think about national security as being this main justification, there's no reason to think that that should be our only justification. That should be the only thing we put into our model. That should be the only thing we price. The idea of pricing one externality, market failure, whatever you want to call it, only only demanding that we only price one of these things makes no sense to me, makes no more sense than thinking there's only one benefit you get from exercise. And that's
1: that's totally fair. That's totally fair. And and, and as long as we're talking about defraying, I just don't want us to get I I worry sometimes that people get the impression, which is obviously not you. But people get the impression that this is actually economically beneficial in a sort of like we would do it even regardless right of the national security side of things it is obviously extremely costly and I I struggle to see any environment where that that stops being the case right now I I would imagine the defraying cost relative to the absolute amount of outlay is is small so even though what why would you, you have, have what looked why? Well i'd imagine it because the subsidies are extremely large because it's clearly much cheaper to produce these things uh, in in east asia because well, how the large how do you think a, have, a local multiplier is well i i don't know but i'm guessing if we're talking about like low wage services work it's not particularly large the so us I mean, is roughly at full employment right so when the, you talk to about, some extent this isn't this isn't just a free hit
2: you're right that uh, so so in terms of creating job, new jobs and there will be unemployed people who now have work there's essentially no benefit because that's macroeconomically determined so i don't care about yeah. that what i care about is wages earnings uh, you know how much do people actually get paid when you when you have everyone at full employment and you increase labor demand what happens is that wages go up and people get more money people get higher living standards gdp goes up and so when you you wanted estimates well enrico moretti has produced estimates of local multipliers for advanced sure. manufacturing
1: I'd, and they're pretty I have big. To read the, I'd have to read the. Variety <clears throat> they're I'm, pretty I'm, big.
2: And so, for example, so suppose you have a local multiplier of 1.7, right, which is in the ballpark of what he finds. What that means is that for every uh, dollar of you know advanced manufacturing you do in a place, you get a dollar seventy more in your local, uh, you know, your local economy, a dollar seventy more of increased economic activity in that economy. And that doesn't, if you're at full employment, that doesn't show up in more jobs because everyone already had a job. It shows up in higher wages. People make more money, and they have higher living standards as a result. And so, those local multiplier, that level of local multiplier would say that a um, a subsidy where we pay, you know, fifty percent, or uh, that that's a third of the all-in cost. So we, it's a it's a one-third subsidy if something if american chip fabs are 50 percent more expensive than taiwan then our subsidy has to be one-third to match their cost right that's uh because one-third of the final cost so we pay a one-third subsidy right and we're getting you know uh the the increase in economic activity from paying 33 percent is 170 percent through this local multiplier that's no contest so so if you want numbers and if you want prices of how much this matters um, and, and, and realize that that local multiplier is largely external to the firm. So this is, you know, this argument can be applied to a lot of things. Like we should encourage urban density in general, and we should have cluster policy wherever we can without China, who cares even on its own. Now, I don't know if Moretti's estimates, Moretti's estimates are really large and he, uses models that give these really, really large estimates for the local multipliers. And I'm suspicious. But you wanted a number and he gives no and say, I, no, that's, and fair, so, that's
1: fair. I haven't I haven't read the paper. I can't, I can't write about it. But the, my point read, is
2: that even um, if that number, even if that the true number is one fifth of what Moretti finds, that's in the ballpark of already paying for the entire subsidy. And if the number is one tenth of what Moretti finds, it is in the ball. It is a substantial defraying of the overall cost, and so if you believe economic models, and if you want numbers, if something like a carbon price for agglomeration, that's what Moretti has given
1: us. and As that, I and say, I can't, people. I can't get I can't engage with it because I, I haven't read the paper. I, I, I. To me, the example for of a U.S. software company or a U.S. biotechnology company, it sounds extremely different from a heavily subsidized uh industry where you're trying to compete with an already very productive much poorer country but i i haven't read the paper i can't i can't debate over the magnitudes cuz i i just don't know what's in it um,
2: okay it's, it's, i yes. i will i'll send you that paper but it is for advanced manufacturing i would love to read it and local multipliers aren't necessarily dependent on competition levels right it's not depending on who else does this like if you the that that affects the cost how much you have to subsidize it? That's the that's the competition is really on the cost side. How well, much do we have to pay our factories so that they can compete with the? Taiwanese yeah, it does.
1: It doesn't. It doesn't because you you talked about you talked about a, a, an area as an exporter, right? Which is right, but that has to imply that, for example, the areas outside that place, which are still within America, can't buy the more competitively priced chips from elsewhere, right? You've got to presume you have to take into account the full subsidy the fact that the american production is much more expensive i, I presume we're talking about a town that is like a net producer of things right. for this so to work
2: what the, i think you're saying time. is that what we're looking for are local multipliers at the are mul- local multipliers at the national level rather than at the city level because yes. if we if we if one town steals chip production from another american town it's no net benefit to america the clustering chip production indeed.
1: or in in the reality, like it's going to be the fiscal firepower, whatever you want to call it. Like we can <laughs> debate endlessly about it's a whole different conversation of the state of the U.S. Well, what I'm saying now is the state fiscal policy. But if you believe there's any sort of cost to that in terms of, you know, crowding out of any variety of full employment, then it's a meaningful right. thing.
2: What, what we're saying is that when we use that word export and I give the example of a town. We yeah. can't take the estimates for towns and apply them to the whole country. No, no. And so I think what you're saying here is that you need you need agglomeration economies at the level of the country not just at the level of a town because if you take you know some economic activity that would have existed in Scottsdale Arizona and you move it to Tulsa Oklahoma you haven't benefited the United States as a whole. Yeah. And that is yes. absolutely right. So you can't take Moretti's estimates for local multipliers for a single town and apply those to the entire United States. What I'm simply doing is saying that that suppose that even if the multiplier for the United States is one tenth of what Moretti finds for a town, it is a substantial factor that we should t- that we need to take into account. <laughs> Excuse me, as an added benefit, as, as as a you know as an added benefit to these you know industrial policies and. And just like the added benefit of, you know, cognitive improvement is like one more reason to exercise, even if that wouldn't be the, you know, maybe you don't want to take two hours out of your day to exercise just for the cognitive improvement. But the fact that there is the cognitive improvement means that if you're already on the margin of thinking about whether or not to take that two hours of your day and exercise, maybe now you'll do it. And, you know, we need to take all these margins into account and that my point about the multipliers is that this is something that we actually know how to get in a model. We just have to do it for countries. Um, in addition, you know, instead of just for cities, we need to do that, but we sort of know how to do that. It's like a carbon price. in you know, yeah, it's sure. a, like no, an agglomeration and, price.
1: I mean, the 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 reality here is I don't think we're all that far apart in the obviously any defraying benefits economically should be counted against the, the cost of doing it for other reasons. I think that the the difficulty, yeah. It comes back to the same thing of how you balance them out. I don't think the way it's done right now is is particularly rigorous. Um I, I think there is a what was the word you used when I said whack a mole? I can't remember. Gish yes, yeah. gallop. Um gish yes, gallop. Um I think there's an element of this going on. Um I, I think one of the things that we probably agree on more than anything and to me is one of the most frustrating things about the the current us approach to this is is the lack initially of of bringing in um non-chinese southeast asian and and east asian economies uh, the fact that for example rejoining the cptpp is off the table um the the sort of the very um i would say unambitious sort of critical minerals deals designed to replicate some of that sort of commercial activity. Um, I think there are all sorts of ways that this could be made to me much more reasonable. Um, right. and, and yeah, and I think the the problem with arguing with you is you don't agree with any of those things either, right?
2: I think that one one thing we could absolutely agree on is the idea that friend-shoring is under, uh, under-promoted relative to reshoring. In other mm. words, um, if we want to make sure that we that our our lithium processing is secure, moving it to India is probably a better idea than moving it to Oklahoma. And um, and so that not only benefits India and helps them escape poverty and cements our alliance and blah 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 and other things I could just rattle off, but it's also just a heck of a lot cheaper. Yeah, uh, because so- this is not yeah this is this is a, a lithium processing isn't a industry that generates huge scale and not a lot of profit
1: no, and you won't make it you won't make any profit doing it right it's a it's a pure like you want it done outside of china um you have a uh some sort of production subsidy that's completely agnostic to where it's done in the world outside of china as long as the u.s has access to it it's all good i mean right. that that makes sense and fits both goals to me right so
2: i think that for a lot so so while for advanced chip production i can see you know reshoring as better than than um french shoring up to a point you know I, I think that to be honest a lot of the the you know getting chip production out of taiwan thing is actually going to just be getting chip production to japan
1: japan is going to yeah. be the big one yeah um, i mean japanese wages the... are really low
2: they're lower than than yeah probably korean wages at this point
1: yeah certainly um certainly gdp per capita the purchasing priorities uh lower um yeah yeah i i could see japan and obviously japan has the sort of you know it used to be the semiconductor exporter right so that they're, they're to some in extent restarting something that they, yeah they've, no. they're they restarting something to some extent that they have done a version of before um whereas uh in the u.s um not so much and i do i i i'm, I'm very interested to see where it goes because on on the one hand Uh, Nobody ever went bankrupt, like uh, predicting that America couldn't do things when it was really committed to uh, and it it managed to do that. You know, that's usually a good bet that when America sets its mind to something, you can do it. Um, On the other hand, things like the TSMC advanced manufacturing plant being set back a year. And it's like these are some of the first guys in here doing this. Right. This is this is early days for this stuff. Um, right. And if you're already seeing those shortages of skilled workers, I have no idea what this is going to look like in like five years when you right. have a but much bigger industry. But that's I,
2: you know, here we get into political stuff, which I e hand waving, but even more hand waving. But um, but I really do think that this that's a good thing um, because it will. The United States has big problems that we've we've erected uh, barriers to every sort of uh, construction growth, uh, especially mm-hmm. land use and immigration so we don't take in enough skilled workers and we you know we think we do but we don't take in nearly enough and we uh, um and we don't allow land use uh easily enough and so some of those initial walls that we run into will make us realize that we have this problem when we commit to this goal okay we're gonna move some chip production here yes we're gonna do it wow we Don't have the workers who know how to do this. Wow, we can't get this land acquired and people are challenging it via NEPA in the courts. And that is bad in terms of, you know, um, the actual thing is bad, but the political uh, ramifications will be good because it will force us to confront these problems and see these as a problem. And maybe it's the American versus British attitude of like, you know, like, Yes, good. We found the problems. Now we know what to fix. Versus, like, oh my God, nothing works. Let's go. Oh, it's horrible. Let's go home. And I mean, like, honestly, Britain needs more of the American can-do attitude, where you just start off thinking there'll be no problems, walk into a wall, and then think, how do I get rid of this wall? And you know, like, Britain has even worse stasis in terms of building stuff than America does. And I don't. Know. I mean, you don't want to get any disagreement. Whatever y'all are doing is 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 not working so you know china spent decades figuring out how to do a lot of this stuff japan spent even more decades figuring out how to do a lot of this stuff the united states in world war ii spent a couple of years figuring out how to do this stuff if you if you read about the world war ii mobilization right they tried to do lend lease and stuff and and they couldn't they 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 were like okay well let's just pay these factories to make it and then they're like wait a second we don't have any of the machine tools required for this and they're like okay so we need the machine tools who can do that? And so they got um, Freedom's Forge is a great book about this. And so mm-hmm. essentially it took them several years of Lend-Lease to figure out how to tool up to do the production we did in World War II. And by the time we hit Pearl Harbor and the real war production, the massive war production, we were already solving that that tooling problem that we had at the beginning. Yeah. So you walk into the I, wall at first
1: and then you get through the wall. You figure out, you're like, optimistic- oh, there's a wall there there's an optimistic way of doing this. You know, we could trade stories about, you know, industrial policy that has and hasn't worked. There's like a, there's a list for each. Right. Um, I, I don't disagree. I I hope very much that it plays out the way that you're thinking that the bottlenecks, uh, focus attention on the bottleneck, certainly in terms of skilled labor, these are not like insurmountable things. It's not a, it's not a hard bottleneck. You can get around it. If you want to, I'll be interested to see whether it happens, uh, I'm a little bit more British about it, a little bit more skeptical. In fact, I honestly think one of the, the, and I will you will not catch me saying this very often, but one of the useful things the British government has recently done is basically determined that on uh, both, uh, essentially, battery EVs and semiconductors, that it's just sitting this one out. It's not going to compete with the subsidies and will almost certainly get the overflow from uh, subsidies in the, in the European Union. Um and that it what hasn't been worth playing the game. Uh, maybe that's a different calculus for America. I'm not saying it's exactly the same decision, uh, but certainly for smaller countries, like I can very strongly see the benefits of just well, uh, well, sitting out.
2: Yeah. So, Britain, you know, I I think that this, you guys often have this can't do attitude, that where where any policy, um, any policy basically has like you know shot down verbally by, by a, a circle of extremely downcast sort of critics, like, you know, no, that won't work because of blah, blah, blah. And, and then, and then nothing ever happens in Britain because like nothing of, you know, and, and then once in a while, Britain decides for whatever weird internal British reasons that it can do something. And then it actually does it. Um, Olympics, Britain decided at some point, Britain decided, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna win the Olympics. We're gonna have all the best athletes. And, and, and the United Kingdom is not the place where you just mentally think of like athletic supermen coming from. And yet Britain has massively outperformed in gold medals uh, because they just decided to do it. Uh, the vaccine program, Britain, along with Germany and the United States was one of the uh, countries that managed to come out with new kinds of vaccines very quickly. You know, uh, mRNA vaccines are better, of course, but uh, Britain managed to invent new vaccine technology and distribute it extremely widely, very quickly. The exigency of COVID overwhelmed the sort of um, the 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 nattering nabobs of negativism, as as Spiro Agnew once put it. Um, they, it overwhelmed uh, the 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 chorus of doubters, and they just did it, and that was great. And Britain honestly needs to do this with housing. And Britain needs to do this with research spending. Britain needs, you know, science, get back in the science game. Spend what, 1.6% of your GDP on research? We're out here spending four or something? Yeah. Like, get back in that game. And Britain needs to get back in the housing game. Like, like I, I read about the British housing process and I live in California and it made me crush to read about the British housing process. And you know, I'm like, okay, guys, no, stop. Just build a house. Like, just do it, do that. You can do it. It's not, no, keep, keep, no. and like, yeah. Honestly,
0: you know, you
1: don't want to find me disagreeing. You don't want to find me disagreeing. Uh, <laughs> no, think? no doubt, no doubt. I mean, so. no, I, I voted with my feet. I don't live here anymore. Um, it's <laughs>
2: true. Yeah. You live in Singapore, yeah. where the government's just like, okay, let's build a house. They can build a house. In Singapore.
1: They know how to build a house. Yeah.
2: So, yeah. so anyway, I think it's it's about time for us to wrap up. But I'm, I would yeah. like to, yeah. Conclude on a note of like determined optimism will hit obstacles. And uh, and yes, we don't want just want to run in the random direction without any justification. And yes, we have to take all the competing goals and trade-offs into account. We absolutely do. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of stuff gets done just by having the entrepreneurial will to do it and then to find where you can't do it and then to overwhelm those bottlenecks after you find them.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think the the hopeful thing is that we can all agree on what the sensible goals are. And we're just discussing the edges of how to meet them all in the most sensible and, uh, yeah, least wasteful way. Uh, but yeah, entrepreneurial spirit, very necessary. I don't disagree with that.
2: Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. Um, Thanks, keep, keep up all the great work.
0: Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind moment of Zen in the arena, the cognitive revolution and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us the review in the app store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and eriktornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening.